This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. Today is August 17th, 2022. Please tell us your name and the years you're at Hofstra Radio. My name is Renee Depew. I was a Hofstra student from 1988 to 1992, and I worked at WRHU from 1989 until 1992. Okay. What shows or programs did you work on at the station? I was on air on Airwave, the alternative show at the time, uh, Rock Solid, which was the classic rock show at the time. Um, I was also the studio host for our broadcast of the New York Saints lacrosse of the major indoor lacrosse league that started while I was there. I think that was 1991 and 1992. Um, those were my, I think those were the extent of my on-air shifts. I don't remember I know I didn't have a regular Classics from Hofstra shift, um, which I understand is unusual. Mm-hmm. How'd you pull that off? I have no idea. <laughs> I really don't. Um, I know my, um, my B shift at the time, which was, you know, you had your A shift, which was your fun assignment, and your B shift, which was supposed to be your, you know, not fun assignment. But I had a ball. I was the, um, like everybody else, I was the engineer for Basha's polka and oberic time, which, mm-hmm. um, you know, which was really engineering boot camp, I think, because all of those songs were two minutes long. They all started cold, they all ended cold, they were all on vinyl. And you really kind of had to be on your toes. I learned a lot about board operation doing that show. Yeah, it's a three-hour show, and it's and it's constant, and there's no rest. So it's it's a tough gig, but I think it's a lot of fun too. It's it's the most honestly. That's some of my. Those are some of my fondest memories because Basha. Mm-hmm. Just a wonderful woman, a wonderful person to work with, an excellent broadcaster, a pillar in the community, a great friend to Hofstra Radio. Um, just spending time with her was um, was enjoyable enough. Then she'd have people come down to visit her, and they were wonderful. And somebody would invariably bring in food, and it was delicious. Mm-hmm. And the the yearly fundraising marathons were a blast. Um, So what, you know, could have seemed like, you know, a boring drudgery to, you know, some normal teenage half goth girl um, was actually a lot of fun. (laughs) It really was a lot of fun. So I didn't consider it the, um, the obligation shift really at all. Did you work on any other public affairs shows or weekend programs? I was for a time um, the studio and uh, not the studio engineer, the uh, recording engineer for a public affairs show that Doug Oaken hosted called Getting to the Point. I don't know how I got roped into that, mm-hmm. but I did that, I guess, for about a year. He was, he had graduated by that time. I think he had started it as a student, continued it briefly as an alumnus. And when he would come back, I would, um, I would record him in studio. I think that was my only public affairs show. I have a vague recollection of that. I, I can see it on the logs. I can see, <laughs> but I don't remember what it was. What was the, what was the show about? He interviewed authors, um, nonfiction authors on various topics. Uh, I think that was mostly what, that's all I remember it being, um, because there was always a book lying around and he was interviewing the author. Um, It was a half hour show, I think. It was pretty easy to do. 
Um, and Doug was always fun to hang out with. So again, it was supposed to be an obligation and was just a good time. Okay. Um, what titles or positions did you hold at the station? I made my way around. Um, I was the, <laughs> I was the producer of Airwave for a while. I was the music director. I wrote down the dates here. I was the music director from, I think, May of 1990 to the following May of 1991. Then I became program director. I was program director from May of 91 until the winter of 1992. Um, After that, I wanted to have as much fun for my last semester in college as possible. So I got off the executive board and um, joined the administrative board. I was chief announcer for my last semester at Hofstra. That was the spring of 92. Also, um, I was also, when I was program director, I think I'm remembering this correctly, um, Karen Jean was station manager. I was program director. Shauna Wharton was program operations director, and I believe we were the first all-female operations board in station history. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's entirely possible. Wow. I think I have that right. Wow. Well, congratulations on that, belatedly. Oh, but... thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 30 years later, um, I am... And I hadn't thought of that until um, about 15 minutes ago. But yeah, I think we were the first all-female executive board the station ever had. Did Someone must have noticed at the time. Jeff must have, or someone must have said, well, you know, this is the first time. I think he did. I think Jeff mentioned it. I think Sue may have mentioned it. If it was true, Sue definitely mentioned it because that was, you know, she was she was girl power all the way. So right. Um, but yeah, I had forgotten that until until a little while ago. All right. Um, now I'm I'm having a, a a hole in my memory. So so your last semester at the station, you weren't program director anymore. Who who did that for that semester? I think Shauna became program director. Okay. Oh, no. Either Shauna became program director or Shauna and Karen switched and Karen became program director and Shauna became station manager. Oh, how interesting. I think that's right. I'm not sure. Okay. I, you know, and I, and I remember at some point Shauna was the morning show co-host. Was that the following year or... That was that was the previous year. Okay. Because she hosted with Peter Ilya and he graduated the year before. Right. Shauna and I did. Okay. Okay. Wow, I, yeah. I, I can't believe I compl- I completely forgot about that. All right, we'll have to talk more about that another time. Um <laughs> this next question, we kind of talked about this before we started recording. Um did you use your own name on the air? And if so, how did you pronounce it? Because none of us know how to pronounce your last name. You've been brought up in about a dozen or, or two dozen interviews so far. Mm-hmm. No one knows how to pronounce your last name properly. And that's why I didn't use it on the air. Okay. I, I was just Renee. My name is Renee, um, which is you know something I still say to this day. I rarely use my last name because everybody gets it wrong. Um my last name in the United States, where we live, where I was born and raised and still reside, is pronounced Depew. Um, the French pronunciation, I'm told, is Depuy. So if I lived in a French-speaking country, I'm sure that's the pronunciation I would use. But here in the good old U.S. of A., it is still and has always been Depew. Okay, so for for the official record now, uh, everyone pay attention and make a note. Uh, okay, thank they you. They don't care. They never cared, and they will mess it up the next time they say it. It's fine. 
All right, all right. You're a better person than I am for for letting that roll <laughs> off, but but good for you. Um, thank you for sharing that. Now let's let's get back to you actually joining the station. Here's a two part question. Answer whatever order makes sense to you. But what first brought you to Hofstra Radio, and then can you paint a picture of what the station was like? Where was it? maybe people that you met, what it looked like, what it smelled like, what was going on when you first arrived at Hofstra Radio? You don't want to know what it smelled like. It smelled like French fries because it was below bits and bites. Um, But let's see. What drew me to Hofstra initially was I wanted to be a radio personality, um, specifically a music radio personality. Um, I listened to the radio you know, from the womb, probably. Uh, Radio was a very important part of our lives growing up. Um, The radio was always on in my house, more than, you know, more than playing records, later cassettes. Um, You know, we did a lot of that too. Oh, and A-Track, because we had an A-Track tape um, Mm -hmm. player in our stereo. Um, But the radio was always on. And I loved the music, really just about any format, um, except country. I never took to country. I still can't stand it. But um, I loved listen, listening to the radio, and I loved listening to the people who were, you know, in my mind, playing the music for me and sharing it with me and communicating on that level. People like... Dan Ingram mm-hmm. and Harry Harrison on CBS FM. Dan Ingram being a Hofstra alum also. Um, the oldie station was always on in my house um, because that was my parents' music. Yep. And I really developed an appreciation for the DJs who had played songs of the 50s and 60s and then 70s when they were new. Um, they had that very personable old time delivery, um, which was very professional and very natural at the same time. And I wanted to do that. And I wanted to connect with people that way, especially since, you know, I was essentially a pretty shy person. So I wasn't much good face to face, um, but I could talk. And I thought that's a great career for me. I can share music with people and I can talk to them. And where can I go to do that? And um, Hofstra's communications department and specifically their radio station was sort of well-known at the time. Um, I grew up um, in Staten Island and with Hofstra being located on Long Island, I thought, well, that's, New York City adjacent, so that's a foot in the door. Um, I was a huge hockey fan, so Hofstra being located next door to the Nassau Coliseum didn't hurt either. Mm-hmm. Um, and down the road from my favorite radio station, WLIR, which became WDRE in the time between my getting interested in Hofstra and actually um, attending. So that's what brought me to Hofstra. Um, But interestingly, I didn't enter the radio station during my freshman year. I went to the the welcome fair, you know, that that all the clubs uh, were having um, my first weekend at school. And it was a very busy table. Um, everybody seemed very intent on what they were doing. Honestly, I didn't find it to be the most welcoming environment, Hmm. but I think that was more me than it was them because I was just so overwhelmed and enthralled with the whole college experience that I made the decision that day very deliberately to just be a college student my first year. I took my intro communications classes, you know, the mass media classes that are required for your degree, because I went in as a communications major, but I treated it more as, 
an extension of high school. Um, you know, I stuck to the regular classes, you know, all of my requirements, the language, mm-hmm. the history, things like that. Um, made friends with people in the drama department, at the newspaper, um, the humor magazine, nonsense. Um, oh, yeah. And a lot of those people also um, were RHU members, but I did not set foot in Memorial Hall, which is where the radio station was located until my sophomore year of college. So so you're intended to go into radio and communications. You don't do that your freshman year. What was it that actually made you go to the station, uh, assuming at the beginning of your sophomore year? It helped that um, one of my roommates worked at the radio station. Her name was Robin Biner. And we had become friendly, I think, the previous spring because we had a couple of friends in common. And she knew I was interested in radio. And, you know, when when our sophomore year started and we were living together, she said, come on, you know, come with me. No excuses. Um, let's get you started with your um, announcing and engineering I don't know what they called them at the time, but you had to be cleared by the radio station in order to, you know, to operate the equipment and talk on the air. Mm -hmm. So she, it was she who brought me into the, um, the main office for the first time. Um, You and I both grew up on CBS FM and WLIR and all these things. And, and you had this clear idea of going into radio. Did what did you expect the station to to look like or or to feel like once you and and what did it feel like when you actually got there? I think honestly, and I was trying to um, remember what my expectations might have been. I was kind of using WKRP in Cincinnati as my frame yeah. of reference, right? So, <laughs> um, and. It didn't disappoint. It was kind of like that. Um, Everybody was a little wacky. Everybody um, was really into what they were doing. Um, But, you know, you walk in and it's just this huge room with a bunch of desks placed haphazardly around, you know, the perimeter. Um, All kinds of storage of reel-to-reels on bookshelves, mm-hmm. um, a random non-working reel-to-reel machine in the corner, I think over by the sports guys, um, and then this slightly sketchy-looking, slightly cantankerous old man in the corner mm-hmm. who, you know, of course, I would fall in love with just like everybody else who ever worked at that radio station, Jeffrey C. Krebs. Um, but it was, you know, it it was slightly intimidating. Everybody was very witty, very sharp. Um, you really had to be on your toes thinking and talking, um, you know, when you were in the office, just as you had to be on your toes you know, when, when in master control and, and actually keeping the radio station on the air. So mm-hmm. um, that was that was a challenge, but that was a challenge I seemed to be immediately up for. Um, it was like jumping into the deep end of the pool and finding you loved swimming. Wow. That's such an interesting observation about being in the office and having to keep your ears open and pay attention because there's always something going on. There's always a story. There's always an argument. There's always a thing happening. And if you missed it, it was gone. So, so even if you're just eating lunch or, or reading for class, you're always sort of on guard. And I never thought of that translating before to being down the hall in the studio and keeping the station on the air. That's, that's such a interesting way to, to think about it. I mean, huh. sometimes it was it was a relief to go and do a shift. 
<laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> you got out of the viper's nest for a little while and only brought your own self down to the studio. And, um, and there, you know, you had a sense of control. Whereas in the main office um, and in that whole hallway, hallway where the music office was, the classics office, Sue's office, you never knew what you were going to come across. Um, but that part was fun too. And I feel like I learned just as much about radio in those interactions as I did, you know, down in the, you know, in the master control and the recording studios. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the music office and you were the music director for a year. <laughs> I, I, let's, let's try to paint a picture of what that room was like for those who weren't there at the time. It was a glorified closet. Um, <laughs> it, it wasn't it? Yeah. Um, it? You know, lined on, it was very narrow, lined on both sides with um, bookshelves filled with vinyl, mm -hmm. um, most of which never made it, as far as I could remember, onto on air because a lot of them were really, really, really old rock albums and i remember us mining them when we created the classic rock um show rock mm -hmm. solid 887 and as a result i mean we played some we were a non-commercial station in every sense of the word during that show because if there was a hit from fleetwood mac we weren't playing it because we didn't have that record. Um, <laughs> we had the six records before Rumors that nobody remembered. You know, the couple before Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham joined Fleetwood Mac. Um, you know, we were that kind of, uh, of rock program because we just, everything was kept from back in the day. Um, but at the same time, there was so much new music coming through that radio station and that specific office. Yeah. I remember clearly two songs coming out while I was at Hofstra and at RHU. Um, the first was Head Like a Hole mm. by Nine Inch Nails. And I remember that, no, that was the second. Mm, I'm bad. I'm sorry. No, that was the first. I remember people stopping in between classes, going down to master control, taking the album out of master control, because it was daytime and classics was on, so nobody was going to miss it, coming to the music office and putting it on just so they could hear that song before they went to class. Mm -hmm. That happened a lot. Um, the other song that, where that happened was um, Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit. Yeah. Where people would just stop by, put the record on, you know, bang their head for a few minutes and then go to class because that's where they could find it and they had to hear it. We were all nuts for that Nine Inch Nails um, album. Yeah. So yeah. That, I mean, that's kind of the vibe that we had there. I remember, Brian, I don't know if you were there yet. I think we continued it after I was program director, but when I was music director, we would just randomly put on some dance music and call it Club RHU in the music, <laughs> not on the air, in the yeah, music, yeah. and turn it way up so that first Sue would complain because she was next door and she was trying to, you know, raise money for the radio station and actually do something beneficial for us. Um, you know, she'd tell us to be quiet. If it was loud enough, Jeff would first call from his corner desk and ask us to turn it down. And then eventually, and God forbid, if all of a sudden he loomed in front of this door. <laughs> <laughs> you may not have heard me the first five times. Turn that down, you know, and then he'd go back to his desk. Um but we would just turn up the, the music and just all dance for like five minutes, 10 minutes, and then go, go back to our business. Um, now, that music office always had that kind of vibe. It had it before I was there. 
while I was there. And I'm sure it continued that way after I was gone. Yeah. Yeah. Until they moved us over to, to Dempster Hall. It was, it was definitely that. Yeah. And just, and just for the last detail part, by fire safety code, I imagine you probably shouldn't have had more than three people in that room. I, if that. And, and if. oftentimes it was upwards of a dozen people a dozen. in the room. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. at least three of them were eating at any given moment. <laughs> yeah. Those yeah. odors stayed. Uh, oh, that's. <laughs> I, I got a big grin on my face thinking about that. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you for that. All right, let's get back to you starting at the station. So Robin brings you to the station and yes. you sign up and yes. there's some sort of class, you know, it's not it's not a for credit course, but you're taking a class to learn engineering and announcing. Do you remember anything about that? Who taught it? Maybe other people that were there with you at the time? I believe Rich Radabelli taught my engineering class. Okay. He was program director at the time. Um, I wish I could remember who taught my announcing class. It might have been. Well, Penelope Owens, I think, was chief announcer at the time. She might have taught it. And it's confusing to me, too, because while I was taking those classes, I was also taking the four credit class. Um the basics of engineering, which I think was COM 21. Yes. And oh, Sue would have taught that, right? I think Jeff taught, no, you're right. Sue taught it. Jeff taught the advanced class. Yes. Right. So at any given moment, I was in that, I, w- I was in that studio with somebody trying to learn something and everything kind of blends together, but I spent a lot of time down there. Um, especially that first semester. But the announcing class must have ended pretty early because my first my first shift cracking the mic was like at the end of October of 89. Um, it was just announcing. I was sharing it with, um, oh gosh, Marianne Bakia. Okay. was her name. She and I were co-announcers. I don't know who is running the board. Honestly, I don't. Um, I still have the tape somewhere. And we shared a 1 to 3 a.m. shift um, for a couple of months, maybe to finish that semester. And then I got my own shift the following semester, at which time I must have been engineering clerk. Yeah. Do you remember the feeling of getting on the air the first time? Were you nervous? Were you excited? Uh, And when did you start to feel comfortable behind the mic? I felt comfortable behind the mic before I should have, to be honest. (laughs) I was just so excited about doing it. I'm like, great, I do this now. This is awesome. You know, and, you know, I'm sure if I dug that tape out now, I'd be horrified. Um, But... I just, I just was so happy to do it that I didn't have, I I really didn't have too many butterflies about cracking the mic. Once I was engineering and I was what they used to call combo cleared, Mm -hmm. where I could actually engineer myself and announce at the same time, that was terrifying. That took longer to get comfortable with. I probably, that probably took a couple of months for me to feel, for me to lose that pit in the bottom of my stomach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, no, as far as announcing, I, I was all in right away. And I probably shouldn't have been, but I was. I, I wonder with that combo thing, you were probably doing a late, airwave shift you said 1 a.m to 3 a.m you're there by yourself yeah you know who knows what you know could go wrong with the transmitter or the board or something like that that probably played into your feelings oh yeah and then we had to sign off the radio station Mm -hmm. um which was always terrifying um i was i was so grateful i remember that i was not part of good morning hofstra yep because 
the idea of turning the transmitter on and, and powering us up scared me also. And then my first, um, my first shift in professional radio was at a station up in Vermont. And my very first shift was a Saturday morning shift. And the first thing I had to do was turn on the transmitter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I didn't really get away from this, did I? Um, but yeah, I mean, it, that was a blessing and a curse. I mean, between 1 and 3 a.m., Jeff was less likely to be listening and criticizing. Um, so you weren't afraid of the phone call. But at the same time, I didn't want to break anything. I didn't want to violate any FCC rules. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had to get our, you probably did as well. We had to actually get an FCC license yep. back then. I don't think you have to do that anymore. No, I don't I think so. I have no idea where mine is. It, it's got to be at a previous job. I have no idea where it is. I, fortunately, you don't need it anymore. I, I have mine I, in a drawer. I've, I've kept it with uh, some other mementos. And just in case, just in case yeah. I need it someday, I've got it. But um, you know, you were talking about that that factor of of Jeff listening <laughs> to the to the station and Jeff, you know, being in the office and telling you to you know turn down the dance club music and so forth. But but that's all a little bit later on. What what do you remember about first meeting him and that, that desk in the corner and that the you know that distinguished man in the corner? What do you remember about that from your early days? I stayed away from him. I was scared of him, mm-hmm. uh, which was unlike me because. I was pretty much a teacher's pet my whole school career up until that point. Um, But somehow I knew not to kiss up to that guy, you know, just kind of steer clear, do my own thing, you know, learn as much as I could via eavesdropping and osmosis and everything. And, you know, hopefully be able to have a conversation with the man eventually. He was not, he was not aggressively intimidating. Mm -hmm. He was that quiet intimidation that's so much more effective. And I mean, it didn't really, I wish I could say it really helped keep us in line in the office. It didn't. <laughs> um, especially when you were there long enough to realize that he kind of enjoyed it on a certain level. The the rowdier we got and the more cutting to one another um, in our jokes and everything. You know, you would occasionally catch a smirk, you know, out of the corner of your eye from the man in the corner who was you know, ostensibly ignoring everything because he was busy. Right. But he didn't miss a trick. Yeah, that's got to be a good feeling when you when you see that smirk or that 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 nod <laughs> of recognition. It's like, okay, he's not going to kill us, but he's not going to kill us. And I somehow maybe kind of impressed him yeah. with what I said. Thank you. You know, um, the first conversation I ever actually remember having with Jeff, one on one was, I mean, it, it was probably not as long into my radio career as I feel like it was, but for some reason, I decided to ask him what the C, his middle initial in Jeffrey C. Krause stood for, uh-huh. because I didn't know. Um, and he made me guess. Uh, <laughs> he gave me a couple of hints and I eventually guessed it and I guessed it correctly. It was Clyde. Um, and I think, I think he made some comment about some de- self-deprecating comment about the name Clyde. And I remember saying something to him like, you know, I am not the person to make fun of other people's names, you know, you hear how everybody butchers my name around here. Right. And that was the that was the first time I remember kind of connecting with him on a human level. I'm sure it had probably happened before then, but that's the memory that sticks with me of my first like 
conversation with Jeff Krause. It was over his middle name, whatever, but. <laughs> no, no, that's, I mean, it's, it's a very, it's a somewhat intimate thing to ask someone. So there must have yeah. been some relationship, but also it's like, I don't know what else to talk to you about. So without getting in trouble. So I'm going to try this. That's, that's, it's a very, it's a somewhat safe thing to do, but it's also could be personal. Um, so you, you hinted a little bit about some of the other people who were around and Robin obviously brought you to the station and said, let's get involved. You've mentioned a few other names. Who else was around in those early days that helped you get comfortable at the station? Um, Eliana Baslaw was the airwave producer at the time, I think she may have been my announcing teacher okay. because she was chief announcer. Uh, Penelope was too at one point. I'm sorry. Eliana Basla um, was tremendously helpful um, to me in the, in the early months and that whole first year. Um, she was the airwave producer. I'm pretty sure she was my announcing teacher. Um, and she really helped me kind of get my foot in the door there and get comfortable. Um, Eileen DeCallis was, I don't know what her role was when I first got there, but she eventually became station manager. Yeah. Um, she helped me a great deal in getting comfortable behind the board. Um, she was a terrific engineer as yeah. was Rich, and they both, um, really worked with me a lot, um, both on board op skills and editing skills. Um, I feel like I learned a lot from both of them. Um, Rob Austin was there at the time. I think on air, he was Rob Austin and he and I wound up working together at maybe two or three other jobs. Over the course of the years, we we just kept we just kept um, entering each other's orbit, mm. and um, you know that was a friendship that began back then. He was very helpful right out the gate, very welcoming. Um, who else? As as time went on, I wound up working very well and very closely with Andrew Schmertz, who became program director when I was music director. Um, and who got us off the ground with the New York Saints lacrosse broadcasts. Right. And um, had no trouble bringing in a girl to be the studio host. Um, so that was a lot of fun, and we, we did wind up working well together. Um, I mentioned earlier um, people who were my contemporaries there, Karen Jean, um, Shauna Wharton, John Booty, um, he was, he was my studio engineer, actually, for the Saints lacrosse games. Um, we worked very well together. Um, Peter Ilya and I wound up working. You know, I can't remember what we worked on at WRHU, but we, did, we wound up working together. Um, he got me my first professional job in radio right. um, up in southern Vermont. Um, so these were the people who I remember working with, um, Jay Brayman was a sports guy and later became sports director. He was, he was very helpful, very talented. Um, Dave Braverman, um, very, very talented broadcaster, varied interests. He was into news. He was into rock, um, and was very welcoming also from the beginning and wound up being, you know, a wonderful coworker and friend in those years. If you don't mind, I'd like to double back to something that you just said about working on the, the lacrosse games. And you said that Andrew had no trouble welcoming a girl into the studio. And today the, the Hofstra radio sports team is, is, so many different people and so many women are involved. But at that time, that was kind of significant. Do you mind talking about that a little bit? Because in our day, it was the sports guys. And that was pretty yes. literal. Yes. And indeed, um, my, my final awards dinner 
that I went to. Um, we actually, Jay Brayman and I got there late. Um, it was my senior year, so it was the spring of 92. And I didn't, I had missed most of the awards presentation and everything. And I was surprised when I got there, um, Jeff presented me with a plaque in, you know, in commemoration of my years at RHU and listed some of my accomplishments and written on that plaque, it ended with, and uniquely one of the sports guys, because while I was there, as far as I remember, I was the, I was the only girl on the air. Mm -hmm. I believe there had been at least one or two women who had done some sports announcing for them in the past. I don't know how regularly, but um, yeah, it was kind of, it was kind of unusual for it to even, um, for it to even be considered. And actually, now that I think about it, if I remember correctly, Eileen was the remote engineer Mm-hmm. at the games. I think I remember that, at least for a while. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was a lot of fun. I always loved sports. I loved the sports guys. I mean, that was always the loudest and funniest corner of the room. Yeah. In that, um, in that office. Um, and when they were looking for people to kind of fill out the staff. I think I had made a, you know, just a remark in passing that, you know, I would love to do that. And Andrew said, well, why don't you? And Tony Sibilla, who was um, an alumnus, but also involved with the um, broadcast, he was either doing play-by-play or color. I can't remember which now, but he said the same thing. He said, why not? And I remember thinking, yeah, I could do this. Why can't I do this? You know, and I don't think, I don't think Susan Waldman was on the air at FAN yet. So I don't remember if I had even really heard too many women do sports in the past. Um, And I wasn't calling the game, but I was doing the, you know, I was doing the pregame and postgame shows. I was doing, you know, out of town scores and everything. And, um, I was so happy that I got to be involved. And again, I wasn't looking at it. I don't think in terms of its importance, I was just happy to do it. Um, I was, I was thrilled that I had the opportunity and I don't think I appreciated it at the time for what it was. I remember talking with Denise Hanak, who who came in the same yeah. time that I did, and Denise was very interested in doing sports broadcasting, and she walked in and went, "Nope, that's not for me," because <laughs> it was such a boys' club, and she just directed her energies elsewhere. It was just it's yeah. it's hard for people, I think, to understand now, given where society and the station is at, where it was. It wasn't it wasn't to to be excluded. It just wasn't part of the culture. I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. And especially if you had any kind of affinity for any other part of the radio station, you know, that's kind of where you went because the sports guys were the sports guys and they did their own thing. And they, you know, they weren't unfriendly at all. Right. You know, they're a wonderful bunch of guys, but they weren't looking to bring you in um, to their little world. Um and yeah, I really don't know how I was able to do that. I guess just from hanging around with them all those years. And and, and honestly, we must have just needed somebody to do it. <laughs> that, that they were open enough to say, yeah, why couldn't you do it? Um, but I'm glad. I'm glad they were open for it. And I'm, I'm glad I piped up because I had a ball. Excellent. Um, we, we've got all these stories, these friendships, uh, the relationships that, that happen out of this. And, and we're looking at this through hindsight. But I'm going to ask you to go back and find your mindset either as someone 
joining Hofstra University or when you actually joined the station. But back then, before you really got involved, what did you hope Hofstra Radio would mean for you and what did it become? I just wanted to soak it all in. I wanted it to be, you know, step one of my illustrious radio career, Um, (laughs) (laughs) which it it was, you know, except for the word illustrious. Um, It was step one. It was actually, can I go on a tangent for a second? Yeah, oh, please do. It was actually step two. My radio debut was on the Howard Stern show. No. It was on WNBC. I and I consider it my radio debut because I was on the air for several minutes with him. I was a caller. I called in. I was trying to be a contestant on a game he used to play where he would have non-Jewish people guess the meaning of Yiddish words. Wow. This was this was afternoon radio in New York in 1985 or six. Um, and I called in because I had plenty of Jewish friends. I knew these words. I could definitely win whatever they were offering. Um, I made the mistake and now you understand where the rest of it comes from. I made the mistake of giving him my first and last name. Uh. My radio debut consisted of Howard Stern making Pepe Le Pew jokes for about 10 minutes at my expense. Um, (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Do you you have that on tape? On tape on it. No, Uh, I wish I had. I think I was too, number one, I was too excited to be on the air and then instantly mortified um, that this is how it was going. And especially since in the end, I was too young to play the game. Um, I knew I might be. So I lied about my age, but I didn't lie well enough. Right. I think I made myself a year older and I had to be two years older than whatever I was. Um, So they wound up hanging up on me, but not before just mercilessly making fun of my name. Um, So that was step one in my illustrious radio career. Step two was WRHU. And I really just wanted it to be you know, the immersive experience where I just learned a little bit about everything. And it totally was. In hindsight, it totally was. That's what I wanted out of it. I didn't know how I was going to get to the next step from there, but I wanted it to be somewhere where I learned and grew. Um, I always loved school. And the idea of getting started in radio in a school environment was like hitting the nerd lottery. I I was all in for it. And it pretty much did what I wanted it to do. You know, I got to go to classes and learn things and meet people and, you know, make friendships that have lasted decades at this point, um, to varying degrees. I mean, thank goodness for social media because, mm-hmm. you know, I had fallen out of touch with a lot of people and then we were able to reconnect. Um, and it's just nice to know what they're doing and to have them know what I'm doing. Um, and, Honestly, I really couldn't have asked for much more than that. I didn't look at it as my, you know, stepping stone to fame and fortune, which was good because that's not what it wound up being. It is radio. Yeah. (laughs) It is radio after all. Um, But it was the immersive learning experience that I wanted it to be. That's fantastic. Renee, thank you so much sincerely for taking the time and sharing your stories. I, I've, I've said this before. I'm a huge fan. If it weren't for you and several of the people that you mentioned, I would not have gotten dragged into the, the, 
the the community of Hofstra Radio. So I have you to be so thankful for for all well, of this. Well, can I jump in? Yeah, because yeah. I don't, want it, I don't want it to go unsaid. Um, as much as I, you know, I listed some of the people who you know graduated with me and worked at the radio station who came in when I came in. You know, many of the um, alumni, but just as important and just as much a part of my happy memories at Hofstra are you and Denise Hainak, Kathy Wurzberger, Mike mm-hmm. Prochotka, uh, Mike Greenberg, Frank Rizzo, the people who came in, Nick DeGeorge, the people who came in after I was there. And I'm sorry for using most of their government names. I don't remember what their radio names were, but you guys were a wonderful, energetic, talented group of people and I learned just as much from you guys as I did from any of the people I've been talking about incessantly for the past, what seems like three hours. Um, so I want to thank you also, because you shaped as much of my RHU life and, and, and fond memories as anybody else. So, and in doing this project, you helped bring a lot of those memories back to the surface for me. And in listening to other recordings by our contemporaries helped remind me of things that I had forgotten about. So I've got to thank you and you better leave this in. Oh yeah. uh, Because you deserve all the credit and then some. Oh, you, you made my week, if not my month by saying that (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm going to be insufferable for, for weeks now. (laughs) Impossible. And, I also say, um, even though I don't think you always appreciated it when I would call you Richie Cunningham (laughs) in college, because you looked just like him when you were 18, 19, 20 years old. Let me just say, you have aged so much better than Ron Howard did. It's not even funny. And I really (laughs) should just retire it right now because, yeah, there's, there's no resemblance now. Well, um, you have maintained your youthful looks and charm. Uh, well, good, good, good Lord, Renee. All the oxygen is going to get <laughs> sucked out of the room now. Oh, boy. There's going to be no living with me. Um, I'll, I'll, I'm sorry, I'll, Mrs. McKinley. <laughs> <laughs> and, and everyone within like a 10-mile radius. It's going to be bad, but thank you. Oh, you're poor students. You're welcome. Yeah. No, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be bad. Thank you so much. This is, this is fantastic. And And... I, I I I would keep you here for days because you said three hours. It feels like ten minutes. I, I feel know. I feel like That's this has just been too. fantastic. So thank you so much, and uh, let's let's do more of these. Well, I didn't tell you the Morrissey story. I remind you of that. So let's save that for the next one. Let's do a tease. I I think I remember which one you're talking about. And <laughs> yeah, let's let's hold on to that one. Fantastic. Let's do that for the next one. Thank you so much. Thank you.